John 7, verses 37 to 52, and I hope that you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm keenly aware of the need for the Holy Spirit's illumination today. Father, we, we are a needy people. We are often weak and frail. We are far, we are far less, we are far less capable than what we perceive ourselves to be. We are not as strong as we think that we are. And so, Father, I am keenly aware of the need for your help. Please, Father, grant us illumination from the Holy Spirit. Please, Father, fulfill your promise that your word never comes back to you void. Please, Father, shape us after the image of Christ. Please have your way among us, Father. Please do what you know to be good and wise, for your ways are always right. Your word tells us that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that we would taste the fruit of that this morning. That you would work now among us by your spirit, through your word. So that our faith is strengthened and that Lord Je the Lord Jesus is exalted and his church is built up in the truth. God, please keep me from error. It is no small thing to open the word of God. Please help me to preach in accordance with the scriptures and grant your saints discernment, Father, that we, would, that we would know the truth, that we would hold fast to it, that we would walk in the wisdom of Christ. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's reset the scene in John 7 as we begin this morning. The people of Jerusalem have been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles for the past seven days. Every morning... 
the priests have poured out jars of water on the altar of God, expressing their hope for salvation. And every evening, the people have joined in an expectant time of worship, asking God to fulfill His promises. So for seven days, with both prayer and ceremony, the people of Jerusalem have sought God's life-giving, thirst-quenching salvation. Jesus, knowing full well the expectation of the moment, interrupts the Feast of Tabernacles. There's really no other way to describe verse 37, which is where we started today. Jesus interrupts the feast. With authority that only God could possess, Jesus declares that He provides life-giving, thirst-quenching salvation for God's people. If anyone thirsts, Jesus cries out, let him come to me and drink. It's a staggering display of self-conscious authority. Jesus knows who he is and what he has come to do. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. All who are thirsty must come to Jesus and drink by faith. What the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated Jesus embodies. But at the same time, the scene in John 7 is not completely positive, not everybody wants the living water. Some people are confused about who Jesus is. The Pharisees even want to arrest him. It's almost as though a a line is being drawn down the center of Jerusalem, and how you respond to Jesus determines which side you are on. That too is part of the setting of John 7. Humanity's relationship to God is defined by Jesus Christ. And so that's where we left things last Sunday with Jesus proclaiming to a divided crowd that he alone can satisfy the thirst for God. If anyone thirsts, Jesus cries out, let him come to me and drink. Today we pick back up with Jesus' message of living water, and we're going to see how Christ's word accomplishes God's purpose. That's really the overall point of the sermon, how Christ's word accomplishes God's purpose. I'm taking my bearings for this sermon from one verse, verse 46. This verse captured my attention all week. Verse 46, the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. That is a marvelous description of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7. No one ever spoke like this man. The authority of Jesus' word is unparalleled. The power of Jesus' word is unmatched. The wisdom of Jesus' word has no comparison. The claims of Jesus' word are utterly without equal. No one ever spoke like this man. And so, from that one verse, I'm going to take our bearings today, that one verse is going to shape our time together. In this sermon, we're reminded of how central Christ's word is, not only to the ministry of Jesus, but also to the purpose of God and to the life of God's people. No one ever spoke like this man. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He speaks the word of God. No one ever spoke like this man. His word is what is central. Christ speaking is the focal point. 
And so that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to study the rest of John 7, and we want to see precisely what Christ's word accomplishes. How does it work? How does Christ's word work? What does it do, both in the lives of God's people and in the world? So if no one ever spoke like this man, then what exactly does Christ's word accomplish? There's two accomplishments in particular that we're going to think about this morning. Let me give them to you in advance so that you can listen, Lord willing, attentively. Two accomplishments of Christ's word. Christ's word sustains, that's number one, and Christ's word humbles. Sustains and humbles. That's where we're headed today. It's one long, prolonged consideration of verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. Let's begin where we left off from last week in verses 37 to 39, where we see how Christ's word sustains the believer's life. That's the first work. Christ's word sustains the believer's life. As we noted at the outset, verse 37 presents Jesus as the source of living water for all who believe. We covered the big picture of these verses last week. The thirst in verse 37 is more than physical thirst. It is the deeply rooted longing that every image bearer has hardwired into his or her soul. We are made to see glory and be satisfied with God. And Jesus is very clear in verse 37. He is the source of that satisfaction. Just as God in the Old Testament called the thirsty to himself, so Jesus now calls the thirsty to himself. What God promised, Jesus fulfills. That's where we left off last week. As we pick back up with verse 38, we learn that there is more to Jesus' provision. If we borrow Jesus' imagery, the well of his living water is profoundly deep. Not only does the living water satisfy, but it also sustains. It never runs dry. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the first question here is, whose heart becomes the source of these living waters? Out of whose heart are these rivers of living water flowing? Do the rivers of living water flow out of Jesus' heart into those who believe? Or do the rivers of living water well up inside of the believer and flow out as a result of Jesus' work? Whose heart becomes a river? That's the first question. For my part, I take verse 38 to mean that the rivers of living water are flowing out of the believer's heart in response to Jesus. In this view, Jesus is the provision of living water and the glory, the power of his provision is that it transforms those who believe. It changes them. Jesus' living water turns our sin-parched, desert-like souls into well-watered oases of life, transforms us. So the river runs out of me because of who Jesus is. It runs out of the believer's heart because of Jesus. Why do I take verse 38 that way? In part, 
because of the Old Testament. Because of the Old Testament. As is often the case in the Gospels, the Old Testament provides understanding. In this passage, Jesus himself directs us to the Old Testament when he mentions in verse 38, as the scripture has said. So, we look back to the Old Testament and we find that the effect of God's salvation was often compared to the effect of water. Isaiah 58.11 is a good example. Listen to how God describes what happens to those who trust him. Isaiah 58.11 And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. The key there is that the believer in God becomes the spring of water. That's why I take the rivers of living water in verse 38 to be flowing out of the believer's heart. God's salvation is living water and it wells up like a spring, like a well, like a fountain in those who trust the Lord. That's the backdrop to Jesus' teaching. The living water of salvation turns sin-parched souls into oases of spiritual life, transforms us. Now, with that interpretation in view, now we can build a bridge to some application for us. Remember, we always interpret the Bible so that we can apply the Bible. The right interpretation is just step one. We want to be hearers of the word and doers. Hearers and doers. So think about that imagery of Rivers of living water. Think about that image for a moment. A river, a river can't literally flow in a human heart. So what does Jesus mean? What does he want us to do with this teaching? What is the application that he wants us to make? Well, remember that Jesus' audience lives in a arid climate. They live in the midst of a desert. These are people who understand the vital necessity of water for everyday life. In fact, much of life in Jesus's day revolved around having access to a water source. Every village and town had a spring or a series of springs to sustain life. And as long as that water flowed, life continued. So when Jesus says that those who believe have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts, his point is that God's salvation endures. It keeps flowing. The spiritual life that God gives to his people has vitality. It has a source that continues to provide what is needed for life. Jesus' salvation, in other words, never runs dry. The gospel never runs out. God gives life through faith in Jesus, and then God sustains that life through faith in Jesus. This is the application from verse 38. This is the whole point behind Jesus using the imagery. No matter how thirsty you are, no matter how much sin has scorched your soul, no matter how many other wells you have tried and found them dry, the gospel will never run dry. The salvation of God in Jesus Christ will never come up short. This is the promise of Jesus Christ to everyone who hears his word today. When God, by his grace, opens your eyes to how desperately thirsty you are, the gospel 
will quench your thirst no matter how deep. And it will quench your thirst today and tomorrow and the next day and every day until eternity. It's rivers of living water because God's salvation never runs dry. Now, next question. We've explained the rivers of living water, so we interpreted that part. We've seen that God's salvation in Jesus never runs dry. But how, how does God do that thirst-quenching work through Jesus? To ask it a different way, how does God keep the river of living water flowing in my heart? That's what I'm trying to ask here. I know that it never runs dry. The gospel never runs dry. But I'm not so sure about me, God. (laughs) So how does the river keep flowing in our heart? How does that happen? There are two ways to answer that question. One is theological and the other is pastoral. And in the end, they go together. Theologically, God provides rivers of living water through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. Now this, the rivers of living water, this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the rivers of living water are the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the believer. In the context of John 7, that gift of the Spirit has not yet been given. Because the Spirit only comes after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to the throne of God. This is extremely important for putting the New Testament together in the proper order. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of Jesus' saving work. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the mark of the new covenant. Once Jesus establishes the new covenant in his blood... Then he pours out the Spirit as the sign of his new covenant and as the overflow of his enthronement at the right hand of God. So how do Christians know that we are united to God and bound for the promised land and destined for eternal life? Because the Spirit is the seal of our redemption. The Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. And that spirit-generated testimony, according to Jesus, is like a river of living water. It sustains the believer in the truth of the gospel. The Spirit's work is to sustain the Christian in the salvation that God has provided. So, so, if you're here this morning, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are struggling with assurance of salvation you're not sure actually that your sins are forgiven and that in the quiet moments of your mind, your soul plagues you with doubts that you're not actually a part of God's people. If you're here this morning and you struggle with the assurance of salvation, there's two things that you ought to know from this passage. One is that you're in good company. This is where God wants you to be in the context of his people. And then two, assurance of salvation is the Holy Spirit's job in your life. So if you struggle with assurance of salvation, ask God to give you assurance by His Holy Spirit. 
Ask him. The, the Bible says that the Spirit himself testifies to our spirits that we are children of God. So when you doubt that you belong to God, ask the Holy Spirit to assure you. That's the river of living water flowing up, welling up inside of the Christian. Theologically, that's how God sustains the life that he gives to the believer. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Pastorally, there's another way to answer this question. I'm a pastor at heart. I hope you're learning this about me and about the other elders too. We are pastors at heart. We are not visionaries. We are not executives. We are not life coaches. We are shepherds. And that means our primary calling as pastors is to help God's people get from here to the good pasture of God's eternal presence. So at this point in the sermon, I'm driven entirely by a pastoral impulse. I want to help you find strength for your faith. So from a pastor's heart, how does God keep those rivers of living water flowing in you? How does he do that? I want you to think again about Isaiah 55. You may recall from last week where we saw how Jesus' call in John echoes God's call in Isaiah 55. Do you remember that? Isaiah 55, 1. God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus, in John 7, says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drinks. Jesus echoes God, for Jesus is God. Later in Isaiah 55, which, full disclosure, Isaiah 55 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. So, full disclosure. Later in Isaiah 55, do you know where God's water is found? In His Word. Isaiah 55.10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, here comes the important part, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. This is almost too much to preach. This is why we had to push it to next Sunday. The water of life comes through the word of God. Did you hear it? God calls the thirsty to himself, Isaiah 55.1. He promises them life-giving water. And then Isaiah 55.10, that water flows in the word of God, which is like rain that falls and waters the earth and brings forth what? Life. Life, Isaiah says. So that's the connection in Isaiah 55. It's water coming from the Word of God. Just as the rain does not fail to water the earth, so also God's Word does not fail to sustain life. That's Isaiah 55. Now, make the simple connection, make the simple observation in John chapter 7. What has Jesus been doing in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles? What has He been doing? Verse 14. Verse 14. He's been teaching He's been giving people his word. His word 
you see, has been center stage. Why has Jesus given them the word and not done more signs? Because of that Isaiah 55 connection. The word of God is the water for life. It's through Jesus' word that God gives life. And it's through Jesus' word that, God's, that God sustains life. In fact, this is how the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a Christian. The river of living water is the Holy Spirit's presence in the Christian, driving the believer by grace through faith to drink from God's word and find life and water for their souls. The water for life is in the word of God. So friends, I just want to ask you, is your soul parched today? Does your faith seem shriveled and dry? Is your heart more like a desert than it is like an oasis? Then come to God's word and drink. Next sentence is maybe the most important one for you to hear. As a pastor, I have nothing to give you other than the word of God. I have no vision no strategy, no plan that can supplant the power and life of God's word. I have nothing to give you except the word of God. And so I'm pleading with you today. I'm pleading with you. This is the full bore of what I want God to do in your life. I'm pleading with you to see that Christ's word, the word of God, hidden in your heart, is the God-appointed, spirit-empowered means of sustaining your life. Every time you open the scriptures, it's like drawing from the rivers of living water. Every time you hear the word of God read in church and prayed in church and sung in church and preached in church, every time you hear the word of God, you draw by faith from the well of life that cannot run dry. So that's the call of this passage. Are you drawing deeply from God's word by faith? How can you go one step deeper? How can you draw a little bit more faithfully? Far too often. I do this as much as anybody else. So if this steps on anybody's toes, don't worry. I stepped on my own on Thursday. Far too often, far too often, we like to sit back and, and kind of murmur that our souls are just dry and thirsty. And in all the murmuring we fail to do the step of faith, which is to go to God's word and drink and be satisfied. So is your soul thirsty this morning? Then Christ's word is where you find the sustaining power for life. Christ's word sustains the believer's life and therefore he calls you today to come to his word, to come to his word and to drink by faith. That's the first way that Christ's word works in this world. From the sustaining power of Christ's word, we, we turn now to the humbling effect of Christ's word. This is the second way that the word of Christ works in the world. From verses 40 to 52, Christ's word humbles human pride. Christ's word humbles 
human pride. Jesus' call to living water is too much to ignore. Beginning in verse 40, the crowd divides over its response to Jesus. There are some people who believe that Jesus is a significant figure, even fulfilling the Old Testament. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses prophesied that a, a prophet, a greater prophet, would one day arise, and it was to him that God's people would listen. So some people in the crowd see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Other people think that Jesus may be the Christ, though they don't seem to think that very strongly. Look at verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So it's the same dynamic that we noted last week. Some people are open to Jesus' identity, but then they quickly, they quickly rule that conclusion out based on their perceived insight. They think they know Jesus well enough, and since Jesus is from Galilee, at least ostensibly, then he can't be the Messiah, right? But you can see the irony in verse 42, can't you? The crowd is absolutely correct that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. That's good Bible study knowledge. They're right. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. What's the problem then? They don't know Jesus as well as they think they do. He is from Bethlehem, at least by birth. And so their knowledge of biblical truth convicts them of, of not believing the truth. The crowd sees, but they don't see. Which is why verse 43 is such a fitting summary. Look there, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. We shouldn't, we shouldn't miss the note of authority in verse 43. Jesus is clearly the one in charge. This all takes place in the temple, the center of Jerusalem, the power seat of the nation, and yet, it's not the Pharisees who are in charge. It's Jesus. They can't even arrest him. It's, it's not the crowd that gets its plan accomplished. It's the Father who has his plan accomplished. Jesus is clearly the one in charge. He's the authority. And his word demands that the people respond to him. There's a division, but the word of Jesus is demanding that response. Before we move on in the passage, we, we ought to pause here and, and consider this point, how Jesus' word demands a response. It's, it's fascinating in the passage that once the crowd hears Jesus' word, they can't ignore him. Did you notice that? They're, they are forced to a decision point. His word demands a response. That's how powerful, how self-authenticating the word of Christ is. It demands that you respond to him. Of course, many of the people don't come to the right conclusion. Their eyes are still blind to the truth. But even still, they can't ignore him. They may reject him, but they can't ignore him. His life, his word, everything about Jesus demands that you deal with him. Once you encounter his word, Jesus is inescapable. You may have heard 
lately how there's a lot of talk about the fact that we live in a post-Christian world now. Have you, have you all heard this phrase? We live in a post-Christian world. How the last vestiges of cultural Christianity are crumbling. What that means is there's no more societal pressure to identify as a Christian. And there's no more societal capital to be gained from identifying as a Christian either. That's what it means, this post-Christian world. So it's, it's common for people to say that now. It's post-Christian, nobody's really interested in the Christian faith. I wonder, I wonder if this little paragraph in John 7 gives us some direction for how to live in that kind of world. Jesus is inescapable. That's what happens here in John 7, 40 to 43. You can't ignore him. Once you hear his word, you can't ignore him. You may reject him, but you can't ignore him. His word demands a response from you. That's where we ought to begin our evangelism. With Jesus' word, having people encounter Jesus through his word, that the, the self-authenticating, demanding authority of Jesus. That's where the hardness of the human heart is brought to account, through the word of Jesus. So it used to be, it used to be that you would invite people to church as the front door of evangelism. But maybe the front door of evangelism is now your living room, rather than this room. And the focus is on this question, who is Jesus Christ? By all means, don't misunderstand me. Invite people to church. We would love to meet them. Invite people to church, but also, also invite them to read the Gospels with you. Say the Gospel of Mark, for example. And, and in the course of reading that Gospel, just answer one question. Just, just one question. Based on Jesus' own words, who is he? Who is he? Once you encounter the word of Christ, you can't ignore him. You might, you might reject him. People might reject him, but they can't ignore him. He's inescapable. And there's some wisdom in that for us as we, as we think about being a church committed to the Great Commission. There's some wisdom there. Okay, rabbit trail finished. Let's look back at John 7. The failure to arrest Jesus requires an explanation. The Pharisees' henchmen come back in verse 45, but they come back empty-handed. I love this, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? I, I just think that's funny. Um, why did you not bring him? Despite their supposed authority, the religious leaders are pathetic. They can't even arrest Jesus. The officers defend themselves by pointing to Jesus' superior authority. Look at verse 46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Do you hear the implied critique in that response? No one ever spoke like this man. Not even you, Pharisees. Not even you, chief priests. Not even you, Sanhedrin. We know what you said, but what you said can't compare to what Jesus said. His word is greater than your word. His authority is greater than your authority. You told us to bring him, but then we heard him talking and we're not bringing him anywhere. 
That's the sense of verse 46. At this point, the Pharisees do what most people do when their reputation is threatened. They get nasty. They call names and impugn people's motives. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Of course, the answer is no. The Pharisees have not believed. But, but notice the implied argument that they're making. We're the important people, the Pharisees say. We're the smart ones. We're educated. We're of high social standing. So if we important people haven't believed in him, then that's your answer. You shouldn't believe either. It's pride, isn't it? It's pride. The Pharisees arrogantly believe that their reputation is proof enough that Jesus is wrong and they are right. We're important and we didn't believe, so you shouldn't believe either. That's why they accuse the crowd of being accursed, verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees accuse the crowd of being under the judgment of God. Since some of the people believe Jesus, then surely, the Pharisees reason, then surely they are accursed, separated from God, cut off, bound for judgment. But, do you hear the irony in their accusation? Remember what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 5? If you believed Moses, then you would believe me, Jesus said. For Moses spoke of me. So who is ignorant of the law? Not the crowd who believes, but the Pharisees who don't believe. Who stands under God's curse? Not those who trust Jesus, but those who reject him. The Pharisees, again, are blind to the truth. And their words convict them of sin. John then ends the section with confirmation of the Pharisees' law-breaking. Nicodemus, you remember him from chapter 3. Nicodemus encourages the Pharisees to do the reasonable thing and at least give Jesus a hearing. Look at verses 50 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man condemned without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus' argument is clear, it's wise, it's biblical. Jesus deserves a hearing. Even the law of Moses required two witnesses to convict someone. The Pharisees haven't heard any witnesses. So shouldn't this group that is so committed to the law of Moses at least hear Jesus's, at least hear him out? That, that's Nicodemus' suggestion. The Pharisees, though, will have nothing of that kind of wisdom. Listen to their sneering insult. And this is where it ends, verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So rather than following the law, the Pharisees resort to name calling. They're also somewhat misleading. Some prophets, like the prophet Jonah, did come from Galilee. And if they knew their Old Testament half as well as they think they did then they would remember that Isaiah prophesied that the light of God's salvation would begin to shine in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9. So the Pharisees are wrong on both accounts. They're wrong 
to insult the crowd, to insult Nicodemus, and they're wrong in how they understand the Bible. But again, they can't see that, can they? That's the irony that runs through the whole scene. I told you that John loves irony, and that this is one of them. Those who believe the truth, those who believe the truth are castigated as fools. And those who claim to be wise are foolishly content in their own blindness. That's where the passage ends. Those who believe the truth are pictured as fools. Those who foolishly reject the truth are content in their own blindness. That's where it ends. What are we to make of that dynamic? What are we to make of John drawing this point out and making it so clear? Admittedly, we are far removed from the context of Jesus' day. Much of the religious and cultural context of the Pharisees doesn't apply to us. But at the same time, the overall takeaway is remarkably appropriate for the church in our day. This exchange with the Pharisees, this ironic exchange with the Pharisees, reminds us that God does not build his kingdom according to the way of the world. Let me explain what I mean. God does not call the wise and the noble and the powerful. God calls the weak, those whom the world looks down upon. Do you see it? In, do you see, I want you to see it in that text. The Pharisees are the ones you would expect to form Jesus' base. They're the religious elites. They're the ones who have spent the most time parsing all the finer points of doctrine. The Pharisees are the ones you would expect to form Jesus' base. Well-trained, well-respected, influential, informed. And yet, they're on the outside. They're on the outside. Who does Jesus call to be on the inside? Outsiders. Fishermen. And tax collectors. And even unnamed members of this crowd. Some people believed in Jesus. We don't ever know their names. That's who becomes Jesus' base. People whom the world considers foolish, weak, and insignificant. That's how Jesus builds his kingdom. By humbling human pride first. And then exalting God's wisdom in things that the world despises. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't take it very seriously when people say things like, this is the most important message for the church in our day. I don't take those things very seriously because that kind of hyperbole is rarely, if ever, true. So that's my caveat. But I do want to stress to you, I do want to stress to you, friends, how important these kinds of passages are to understanding the way God works in the world. The growth of Jesus' kingdom does not look like what the world expects or demands. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in our day. The Pharisees are humbled, not called. And those whom the Pharisees insult are the ones that Jesus chooses. That's upside down. That's not how we would write it. And that's exactly how the gospel of Christ works. God receives glory by using 
what the world considers foolish and weak. That's how he accomplishes his purposes. Remember, the gospel is ultimately a message about God and about his glory. Why does God save sinners so that he is glorified for his mercy and grace? Why does Jesus build his church so that he is glorified as the head of his church? The gospel, properly understood, is radically God-centered. God acts for God, and we receive the benefit of it. And therefore, churches that want to be shaped by the gospel ought to expect things to work upside down from the way of the world. We ought to expect that that's how our life together will go because that's how God is glorified. By humbling human pride, exalting what the world calls foolish so that the only way to boast is in the Lord. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in gospel form. God's wisdom is glorified by choosing what the world calls foolish. God's strength is glorified by elevating what the world calls weak. God's grace is glorified in calling those whom the world considers worthless. It's not the Pharisees who enter in. It's fishermen and tax collectors and a whole host of disciples that we don't ever know their names. So, it is vitally important that churches pray and cultivate gospel-shaped expectations for life and ministry. We are so deeply wired to think in the world's ways. I don't mean grossly immoral ways. I just mean in terms of influence, power, growth, advancement, and that is not how God's kingdom works. We ought to regularly ask God to help us repent of using the world's values and the world's methods to attempt to build God's church. Christ's word always humbles human pride. And, and therefore, we ought to expect that when a movement of God is about to begin, when God's spirit is about to blow across a group of his people, that the way he works first is by humbling us. So do we want revival? Do we want growth? Yes, then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's how God's kingdom works. It's upside down from the ways of the world. No one ever spoke like this man. How true a statement that is. I love that verse. No one ever spoke like this man. The word of Christ is unparalleled in human history. Once you hear his word, you cannot ignore it. Or you do so at your own peril. No one ever spoke like this man. So may we be humbled under Christ's word. Turning from pride that so often creeps in. And at the same time, may we be sustained by that word. Remembering that living water flowing from Jesus Christ in the gospel never runs dry. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be those who not only hear your word, but do it. Help us to be people who are shaped by the gospel. Father, we want to profess our faith in Jesus Christ. We want to celebrate his saving work 
in us. And we also want to be shaped by that work, Father, so that the message of the cross begins to inform our expectations for how we live and how we interact with one another and how we do ministry. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we allow the world's mindset to become ours. Help us, Father, to be people who are deeply marked, deeply marked by the message of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.